0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Know the Faith, Defend the Faith. My name is William Hemsworth. It's great to be with you all today. I'm really honored to have my guest, Eric Ibarra. Um, Check out his website, ericibara.org. He's done a lot of great work, fantastic apologist. Check out his blog. He deep dives into many subjects. Uh, Eric, it's a pleasure to have you on today. How are you doing?
1: Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I'm just uh, humbled by your introduction. I'm happy to be here and uh, appreciate your work as well um so yeah we're we're both blessed to have each other
0: oh well amen so i, I asked you to come on today to because you've done a lot of work in the area of eastern orthodoxy of course the papacy so i want to talk about the differences between our eastern orthodox friends and us as uh, roman catholics but before we do that may, can you maybe go over maybe what some of the similarities are for those that may maybe aren't familiar
1: yes yeah so you know um so, what may be very familiar with uh, your listeners is that uh, when we look back to uh, Christian history, uh, we recognize that throughout the first t- uh, twelve centuries, roughly, uh, Christendom was largely united, and you know that led up to the famous Greek and Latin Schism, uh, symbolically dated to ten fifty four um but certainly uh that's a rough date um but you know catholics speak about the one and uh, the one undivided church of the first millennium and so uh eastern orthodox and catholics we look back at that shared patrimony uh where we were both linked together in one bond of communion one bond of peace And so we share uh, a huge line of beliefs, and we also share a historical lineage and an apostolic lineage back to the Church of Jerusalem, which, you know, was created on the day of Pentecost. And so, you know, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the the Catholic churches were were both apostolic churches. Um, You know, we've elucidated that in recent history with the uh, Second Vatican Council and Lumen Gentium um, document talking about the uh, the nature of the church, the calling and vocation of the church, but also our relationship with those who are close to us by many bonds. And so even though the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church today, we don't enjoy uh, the same union we had in the first millennium, we do share a massive patrimony. Uh, The seven ecumenical councils, for example, both of those uh, confessions, decrees, and canons uh, are both equally cherished by East and West. And we also share um, the the pedigree of the church fathers all the way up to, uh, and sometimes even past, uh, that symbolic date of 1054. Mm So, uh, you know, we have a calendar of saints that are pretty much the same when it comes to the popular doctors, martyrs and mystics of the past. Um, We both believe in the seven sacraments. Uh, We both believe in the authority of the visible church, the singularity of the church. Uh, We both believe that the church has been equipped and authorized to teach the gospel to the nations. Um, all questions of doctrine need to be pointed back towards the church to answer definitively. So we share a lot. I mean, we can go on and on. But um, you know, for your listeners, uh, you know, it would be a good idea if you haven't already to visit one of these churches, these Orthodox churches. Uh, if you haven't already visited a uh, an Eastern Catholic, you know, Byzantine Rite church or uh, Ukrainian right, there's all kinds of uh, different Eastern Rite churches in the Catholic communion. Um, But yeah, that's just tipping. That's just the the tip of the iceberg.
0: (laughs) Oh, definitely. And for anyone out there, I do recommend you visit one of the Eastern rites. It's absolutely beautiful and stunning. You'll definitely be blessed by it. So what I guess what exactly happened in 1054?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because um, today, when we look at the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, uh, ecumenical dialogue really centers in on uh, the papacy. On the nature of the papal office, and that seems to that seems to harbor the most controversy today in our dialogue. However, if you go back in time, uh, for example, in the 15th century, the debate was largely on the filioque doctrine. Um, but going back to 1054, that symbolic date, um, it wasn't even the filioque uh, substantially. What really created the fracture between uh, Rome and Constantinople in 1054 were some preliminary letters that went back and forth about the use of lev- uh, uh, the use of enzymes in the baking of bread for Holy Communion. Uh, so the 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 Western churches. Um, probably somewhere around the you know eighth ninth century we can't be absolutely certain when they when we started this but instead of using leavened bread uh we began using unleavened bread so flattened flattened uh hosts and the eastern churches the greek churches um, when they got notice of that uh it it seems as though either they were confused about it uh, and didn't write too much about it, uh, or they simply thought it was a different custom. But when when there was reason to bring this up as a matter of controversy, uh, the Greeks accused the Latins, the Latin ritual, of a heretical sacrament, basically uh, using unleavened bread subtracted from the essence of the sacrament of the holy eucharist and so they accused the latin churches of uh of defecting that sacrament and so they, they even said it wasn't a real sacrament um because it had to be leavened so you know you've got a, a number of churchmen uh writing letters back and forth and that led and there were some other accusations about Latin customs, fasting on Saturdays, using milk and cheese during Lent, um, other issues that um, obviously they would have known instantaneously if they had uh, inter-global instant communication like we have today. Right. Uh, but back then, because you had the you know division of the empires, the West rose, the you know the Byzantine Empire kind of went more west, uh, eastward. Um, communication wasn't as instant. So a lot of these things were not panned out instantaneously. Uh, but when knowledge came to the surface enough for, for that controversy, that's really what sparked the debate. And so that's when Pope Leo IX sent legates, uh, one of which was the famous Cardinal Humbert Candida. And uh, that led to you know a fiasco in the city of Constantinople And uh, you know, yes, the 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 Humbert did accuse the Greeks of not having the filioque in the creed. Um, So there were some other accusations going on, but what really led up to that issue was the ezymes, the use of ezymes in in the holy in the holy Eucharist. Um, They would call the Latins derogatorily the Ezimists. So you know that was the first official term condemning the West. Uh, then there was the filioquists and then today the papists but it really started off as an as issue
0: fascinating never heard that that's uh very interesting how it started off with just that (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's not
1: really you know it's it's, what's interesting is the orthodox don't really bring that up today Um, i've never heard it
0: ever (laughs) no
1: i i i I, you know i've i've uh i've spoken to some of the english speaking uh you know some of the world's experts in the english literature uh in canon East, eastern orthodox canon law and they've even said it's kind of a dead issue today so it doesn't seem like much the orthodox really make a, that big of a deal of it anymore
0: okay now you mentioned two things the filioque and the papacy are those really are those the two main things separating us today
1: yes absolutely so the you know the orthodox church uh right now today um there's you know a number of issues there's there's more than the papacy and the filioque but those two things take up the most space in the dialogue um and then the filioque way opens up two further issues uh the question of the theological correctness of saying that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and secondly, whether the Latin West was duly authorized to add filioque to the creed, which is a a more of a disciplinary question. So the filioque's got a dual problem for the Orthodox. Um, For the papacy, uh, they just, they reject papal infallibility, and they reject um the ordinariness the immediateness and the directness of papal jurisdiction um of the bishop of rome so those are really the those are the that's the powerhouse problem today
0: okay now as far as the papacy goes you mentioned some of the issues that the orthodox may have with it can you tell us exactly how they view the papacy
1: yeah this is um you know it it really takes a long time to really get into all the details so i'm just going to try and give the helicopter view of the forest here the eastern churches were all aware that the church of rome was the head of the church you know that the head of all the churches um that's kind of unavoidable because the ecumenical councils refer to the pope as the head of the universal church uh so the the eastern churches today uh you know they're not as unified on this question you know so you can talk to uh a a, a, a theologian in russia under the moscow patriarchate and they're going to have a a, a a very different critique of the papacy than if you were to go to the patriarchate of constantinople for example um but they're all united in rejecting the idea that out of the apostles christ singled out saint peter and gave him a discriminant supremacy so a unique authority uh the nature of which is jurisdictional um immediate and over the whole church so they would opt for something far less in nature and degree you know so sure you know like the russian churches they say yeah rome was the first church of the first millennium but they held a primacy of honor only and so you know the pope being a uh, a primus pares, meaning he shares the same vocation as every other bishop but um there's this added layer of honor which is really not in essence, one of authority, but there's certain memorial honor that goes to Rome uh, for for several reasons. You know, it was the capital of the Oikumeni, the the Roman Empire, and so the Church, being part of you know, the Church at one point came so united to the Empire that the Church started to adopt many of the geopolitical structures of the Roman Empire. So you know, Rome had that 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 uh that historical um you know prestige um also peter and paul were the saints peter and paul um they they shed their blood in that city and and so sanctified the church of rome uh with and and they're they're like the duo primates of the apostles Mm -hmm. um so you know they find these these extra layers of reasons to put Rome in an honorific position, but that position is not some sort of sacro juridical authority over the rest of the church, see? So I I think that, you know, however diverse the Orthodox critiques are today, they would reject that he has a primacy of, of jurisdictional authority he has a primacy of honor maybe with some canonical privileges that are not the same for everyone but it's regulated by the canons it's regulated by a church constitution it's not something where the you know the pope has divine right to judge and and lead the church
0: okay so how would how would they interpret matthew 16 18 for example
1: yeah, so I mean that that varies too. Um, so you you know, um, if you if we speak with some of the more scholarly Orthodox theologians today, uh, I think they they would have no problem in finding um, that Saint Peter, for example, is the rock of the church. So in some sense, uh, Peter holds this supporting function to the church, kind of like a foundation to a building. Um, but they may put emphasis more on the faith of peter being what causes that rockiness and and so the faith and the man are divisible and so um perhaps you know there is this primacy given to peter um but that doesn't mean peter has some sort of unique prerogative um in the in the apostles and and so yeah he could be called the rock because of his confession of faith Uh, in terms of the keys of the kingdom the orthodox typically understand that peter received the keys of the kingdom simply as um, the first in an order of equal series so, kind of like a serial primacy, he received it first in the series. But then the apostles received the keys, and then the bishops received the keys, and you know, to some extent, even presbyters, priests use the keys. So they don't see the keys as some sort of like a, a, like a singular authority um, in relation to the church. They would kind of see the keys as kind of like a a corporate a corporate authority that you get, that every bishop has, every apostle has. Um, and so decisions have to come, you know, when it comes to final decision making, for example, it has to be all of the, it has to be everyone's input or some majority of the, you know, some moral majority uh, giving the input rather than one one man, you know, okay. having a final ratification.
0: Gotcha. Okay. No, to the filioque, I know that's a whole deep subject. Uh, but uh, which can, you know, we spend hours on, but I guess what's I mean, obviously we say the holy spirit proceeds through the father and the son is there a theological issue with that that the orthodox have or is it more of the who gave the authority for the for the, for that to be added?
1: Um so the filioque is a very thorny problem. Um really what it comes down to is yes, it does come down to a matter of authority. Um there were saints in the first millennium who understood that uh that the church at least had the authority to add to the creed. Um but that you know that was not the unanimous view. Um you had some folks who really thought that the church at the at the uh second ecumenical council but really at the at the third and fourth ecumenical councils uh put sort of like a permanent lock on the creed and um so especially for the greeks in the east you know the byzantine churches um the creed had a, a a permanent lock on it and but that that, that seems to not have been the interpretation of the, the Latin West, because we see it as early as the sixth century at the Council of Toledo in 589, um, they do add the filioque to the Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed. And so in the West, uh, at least since the sixth century, um, the creed was, was you know, if it was recited or if it was talked about in catechetical instructions, it had the filioque. and Um, You know, it was so much so in the, the, you know, Frankish realm and the Germanic realm um, that uh, in Spain, for example, they all over time, they all thought that the original creed had the filioque. It was so embedded into the into the Latin West, for example, so that by the time you reach the ninth century with Photius, the, the, the Latins farther west than Rome, they thought the filioque was original. Of course they were wrong uh, you know the greeks were right that filioque was added uh, rome took a middle position uh, defending the orthodoxy of the filioque so the filioque is correct in doctrine um, but rome all the way up until the uh, 10th century um, held that the creed should not have the filioque uh, so there was in other words you had rome and then some other western churches that uh, that you know the western churches wanted to keep the filioque in the creed but rome didn't allow it so um that created a middle position and and the eastern churches for a time as long as the filioque was not in the creed um it seems as though they were willing to entertain this modus vivendi, a sort of toleration of of the acceptance of the doctrine but as long as it's not in the creed but eventually in the 10th century probably 1014, was a papal coronation mass of King Henry II, I believe. Um, Filioque was recited in the creed for the very first time in Rome. And since then, around that time, the Eastern churches accused the Latins of breaking the, the law of the church, because the law forbade any additions to the creed of course the west would respond and say that you know this is a discipline you know it's not an essential piece of doctrine the creed the the construction of the creed itself was um a gradual development um you have changes in the creed from the synod of uh constantinople 381 to the synod of chalcedon and 451. Uh, the Nicene Creed in 325 was even different than what the Greeks cite today uh, in their divine liturgies. So the West thought that the Pope had the authority to unlock the creed and add filioque weight to it and also defend its doctrine. So that was kind of the last straw for the Greeks, you know, and and so they they both you know up to this day dispute the theological correctness of the filioque and they also believe that the west violated the law of the church and so the the catholic west is the one that is um responsible for the for the schism okay
0: what would have to happen in what would have to happen in regard to the filioque for there to be unity
1: Wow. So that's a good question. So right now, any question on what has to be done for the unity of the Eastern and the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church um, would first involve the Eastern Orthodox coming to a consolidated view on anything. Um,
0: (laughs) That's going to be my next question. (laughs) Because right (laughs) now,
1: it it takes uh, a lot for the uh, Orthodox churches to uh, come to an agreement on uh on questions of doctrine questions of church law (laughs) the evidence of that is uh in the recent council of crete in 2016 uh they they were not able to manage an ecumenical council or a pan-orthodox council uh so what must be done for unity on the filioque really requires the eastern churches to collaborate amongst themselves on what they would on what they would accept because right now the patriarch of constantinople um he's very open to unity with the catholic church um and in fact it's reported that when he was on mount athos recently uh he said there is no doctrinal barrier uh to the union between east and west now if you ask, you know the patriarch of, uh, Georgia, if you ask, uh, the patriarch of Moscow, uh, Kirill, um, you know, you're going to get a different answer. And so, but I I would say that if, if we can show that by our doctrine of the filioque, uh, we are not sacrificing the monarchic singularity of the father, that the father is the the soul rk he's the sole beginning the sole origin of the tripersonal unity of the trinity um, then we should have no problem with the you know unity with the orthodox church but there's so many layers of doctrinal significance to this yeah. um it would be impossible to scope it out but I, I you know the main issue is they think that the filioque way, um turns the father into a dyad with the son and so the son and the father become sort of like two principles in the godhead and you can't have two principles in the godhead because god is one you know god has to have that singularity um so they they think we've committed a a very serious error when it comes to theology proper um but i think our theologians always you know back since uh uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas, Saint Anselm, uh, Saint Bonaventure—you um, know—several uh, uh, of our theologians have shown that not only is our doctrine patristic, but it doesn't fall victim to their criticism. So I, I think that you know the, we're really going to have to hash that doctrinal issue out. Now the Greeks and the, the Greeks agreed at the Council of Florence um, in our resolution of the filioque. Uh, we showed that it was in the church fathers and that it has a, a doctrinal coherence. And uh, the Greeks agreed. Now, obviously, that's another thorny issue on the Council of Florence. Um, the Greeks ended up rejecting that. So they at once rejected it, but uh, later on, they said the conditions for agreement were not sincere, they were not sufficient. And so they ended up annulling that Council for their end, you know, but for us, it's an ecumenical council. So I think we've done all the work of showing that the filioque is 100% innocent. Um, so it's going to take, I think that the Orthodox are going to have to really incline their ear more on that problem.
0: Yeah. Okay. How about with the papacy, what has to be done there?
1: Yeah, so I, I think, you know, there are some legitimate complaints, I think, from the Orthodox on the papacy. Um, and, and that's really due to historical accidents. So, um, following the Gregorian reforms, in the, uh, you know, we're talking about after, you know, in between the, the, the 10th and, and the 12th centuries, there was a, a gradual development um, with the authority of the papal office. And it was really because of what's called the investiture controversy in the West. Um, you had local kings, local uh, lords and local princes that um, because they had ownership of property, uh, they felt like they could regulate ecclesiastical affairs, choose their own priests, choose their own bishops. And so this severely weakened the church of the west and so the the only answer to that was to to augment, the authority of the pope and to make certain new disciplines that would require uh, intense papal supervision and in order to avoid the in you know the the secularization of the church um and so this kind of molded the papacy in a, a much more overarching supervisory role instead of you know in the past the papacy was like the last court of appeals, um, sort of like the like a watchman, you know, like a, a wat, you know, sort of looking from afar and making sure that the church is all right. Whenever there's a serious problem, then the papacy gets involved, right? But that changed with the Gregorian reforms. So now that there was all these kind of papal regulations in the everyday life of the church, and that's that's not necessary, you know, that's not really necessary. Um, So I think the papacy could dial back um, and, you know, retain all of its doctrine about its universal jurisdiction, universal primacy, um, everything that Vatican one says, but dial it back to what it used to be, which is a last Court of Appeal. Mm -hmm. Um, So that way, we're respecting the full responsibility of patriarchs, archbishops, metropolitans, and and they can sort of be more free to handle their own internal affairs. Uh, whenever something can't be resolved on a local level, then it should get kicked up to a higher level. Until and if and if it can't be resolved on a regional level, then it should then and only should it be kicked up to. The highest Supreme Court, which is the Pope, um, so I think if we were to dial back to that format, that would really go a long way okay. for the Orthodox.
0: Do you think we'll see it in our lifetime? <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> uh, I don't. I, I don't, and, and, and here's why: because um, even with dialing back, like I just said, um, they still disagree with the the constitutional theory that christ took peter gave him these authority. so they they really they they don't mind rome being like the final court but it has to be mutually regulated you know like if we permit you know if, if if the churches permit the case to be brought to rome or if they invite rome you know and they would probably have problems with saying that the whole orchestra is of divine institution they would say it's not really divine institution it's more of an ecclesiastical institution something that the church created later and you know it's good for managing the uh, affairs of the house economy of the house but it's not something like doctrinal divinely instituted and something that we have to believe so i i think even if we dialed back like i described they still they're still going to quibble with the constitutional theory and especially with with moscow and constantinople being at odds we who are we gonna i mean russia's the largest populated orthodox church in the world um and and their theory is that the pope is not last court of appeal he's only a primate of honor i mean they they really shaved it down to just mere honor uh for constantinople the bishop of rome has canonical jurisdiction but not on the same constitutional theory so there's still a lot of differences and uh, in our lifetime it would take a miracle and of course god can do that but i i don't see it happening
0: no just one, one more question um is it possible for like constantinople for instance to come into full communion while the other ones are not
1: yeah i mean it's happened you know similar things have happened before like that you know constantinople came into communion with rome at the union of florence for example that union lasted in constantinople for about 20 years um but the other patriarchs did not recognize it um so right now you have 14 autocephalus heads of the eastern orthodox church uh, if one of them entered into union with Rome, um, they, you know, one possibility is that the other thirteen just remove that patriarch from the 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 union of churches, and they may, you know, try to get a pan-orthodox synod to establish a a, a you know a new bishopric or you know the lawful successor of Constantinople, and then you'd have sort of two bishops side by side in constantinople the the one that's still in communion with the 14 uh, you know auto and then the other one in communion with rome so it's it that happens it has happened before um so it, it's certainly possible you know if constantinople did that uh it is likely that he they it, it wouldn't be alone i think there would be some other churches that would 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 also do it um but it would definitely be a schism It would definitely be a
0: schism okay let's switch gears for a second in the introduction i forgot to mention your work with reason and theology my apologies for that i don't know how i forgot it's my favorite youtube channel but uh thank you but um so what's going on over there what are you guys working on
1: well yeah so uh you know reason and theology is um you know it's grown a lot um i have actually been absent recently because i've actually returned to full time school, um, and and so I you know I have less time to be on. I am ske- I, I am scheduled to be on, again. Uh, but Michael Lofton's kind of taking the helm of the of the boat there, the ship there, and he's doing well. I mean, he's doing a lot of work on the magisterium. He's doing his doctoral uh, dissertation on uh, magisterial uh, how to test magisterial documents. So he's really going in that direction, Uh, but you know we still have a whole host of interviews from varying different perspectives, Um, and and so check it out. You'll and of course you know admittedly there there does seem to be sort of a an emphasis on East West relationship. So you know we don't really deal too much with like the Protestant Catholic divide. Um, I think that when reason and theology started. Um, we saw so much of the Catholic Protestant, um, you know, uh, treatments in YouTube world that we thought that, you know, the Orthodox East and West issue deserved attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so anybody who was interested in in that kind of, uh, thing, you know, that's, that's the ballywick of reason and theology.
0: <laughs> no, I really do enjoy the channel. I'm not just saying that I watch it. All, my wife can detest. I watch it all the time. She's like coming into the room. Let's let's watch something else. Okay. Let's watch the office or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about your book. I hear you're writing a book. What's it about?
1: Yeah. So, um, yes, I'm, I'm working with the publisher, you know, obviously, um, trying to get the book, the, the page number down, you know, the shorter it is, the more, more people would be interested in buying it. But, uh, you know, the, the you know the working title from my end is the papacy, revisiting the debate between Catholics and Orthodox, and so really what I do in that book is, um, I'm, as the title says, revisiting because uh, there have been authors that have tried to to address the issue, for example, uh, Father Adrian Fortescue, uh, Father Klaus Schatz. Um, you know, there's been other books written on these, on, on the issue. Um, but I think that the Orthodox, um, a lot of their objections, especially the strong ones, um, were not always known due to the fact that they weren't translated in, into English. Um, uh, mass communications were not uh, as prevalent. I think that they've, they've done a lot of homework in, in answering Catholic arguments. And I think that it deserved a new treatment, okay. you know, an updated treatment. And so um the book is not as, you know, so some listeners may think, oh, this is like the Catholic, you know, defense of the papacy. It it is, you know, but it it really is a balanced view. I, I think that in the in the fight between the Orthodox and the Catholics over the papacy. Um, it's not like a Mike Tyson first round knockout. Um, it's, it's definitely the older 15 round, you know, shebang, And I think the Orthodox land, a lot of clean shots. I mean, and it could be to the point where, you know, the judges have to rewatch the video (laughs) of the fight. Um, so, uh, I, I try to be as fair and balanced as I can, but I do think that the Catholic church wins. Uh, even if by the hair of a weight, or uh, the hair of a, the weight of a hair, on on a micro balance, uh, I, I still think the Catholic Church wins the the debate, and I explain why. But you know, as readers go through it, they may be um, they may be awestruck that you know sometimes I I make some major concessions that you know the Orthodox have a point in, in some things that they say.
0: Right. Do you have a release date yet or not? Not quite yet.
1: No. No, I wish I did. I really wish I did. I don't. Uh, it's soon. I'm I'm hoping, but I don't have a release date.
0: Well, you have a lot on your plate with family, school. So you do, you're right. doing a lot. So Yeah. Eric, how can our listeners get a hold of you if they wanted to learn more about you?
1: Yeah, so um ericibara.org. That's e r i c k y b a r r a.org. You can go there. Um I still you know regularly write articles um and or you can see you know look for reason in theology i might be on there i actually created my own youtube uh show but i i won't be doing i haven't even done episode one yet i probably probably won't do a first episode um for a while there is two videos uploaded from years ago but um it's called uh, classical christian thought on youtube um so you might subscribe there for future updates. Um, and then I'm on Facebook quite often. Um, so those are the three uh, venues uh, that anybody can reach out to me with.
0: Great. Well, Eric, thank you for your time today. I know we've just scratched the surface, but um, I really thank you for your insights and and thoughts on the subject. Thanks for coming on.
1: No, thank you for having me.
0: All right. God bless you.